be seated. No human relationship more clearly, more widely displays our depravity as a human race than marriage. Bible-believing followers of Christ understand that marriage is designed by God. It's His idea. It is His gift to humanity. And we know He designed marriage as a high calling for those of us who are redeemed. It is a calling to mirror the relationship between Christ and His church. A Christian husband and wife are to mediate the glories of God to a watching world by displaying joy and mutual edification in their covenantal relationship of lifelong fidelity to one another. And God intended that married couples more privately find exquisite delight in one another. There's the public realm in which we display the glories of God in that relationship and the private realm in which we are to find exquisite delight body, mind, and soul, and so relate to one another that we become better people because we know one another than we would have been alone. But this is not what we typically see. This is not our world. In every culture of the world, in every culture, marriage introduces estrangement, separation, Divorce, infidelity, bitterness, abuse, broken hearts, and shattered homes. If we pictured marriage as a $200,000 car that God gifts to humanity, we drive away in that car like a bunch of monkeys, trashing it and then crashing it. The problem, however, is not that we're merely ignorant as monkeys not knowing how to drive the car. The problem is sin. Marriage unites two sinners. And when two sinners are joined so closely together, trouble always follows. But if marriage uniquely displays our depravity, it is equally a realm in which God displays His transforming grace and power. It is here in this troubled relationship so often that God shows His strength, His truth. God's grace is put on display when the marriage of two sinners is progressively transformed by His Word and Spirit. Transformed into a thing of beauty. Into a relationship that is distinct and pure. It's in the interest of such transformed marital relationships that the Apostle Peter writes in chapter 3 of his first epistle. I encourage you to turn there, make your way there in the text of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3. At chapter 2 and verse 13, we remember as we work our way through the book that Peter begins to flesh out in practical terms what it looks like for believers to live as a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people uniquely possessed by God. What does that look like? How do we mediate and proclaim the excellencies of the Savior who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light? What did He say first? First of all, practically what that's going to mean is that we become law-abiding citizens who respect the governing authorities. That's how we live out our life as those who have been chosen by God to mediate His glories. We will honor all people, He says. We will love one another. We will fear God. We will honor the head of state. Peter then turns to address the slaves in the congregations at verse 18. As church members are to submit to the governing authorities, so slaves are to be subject to their masters out of reverence for God. Now at chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter addresses wives and husbands in the congregation that were reading this letter as it was given to them. We all need this counsel. We all need it. Those of us who are married need it very much. Those of us who are affected by the marriages of others, those of us who will be married someday, whether we know it or not, But I think really all of us 
even those who will never be married in this life need this text of Scripture because we must all labor together as a community to embrace a biblical view of marriage. We must embrace that view and celebrate that view together as we stand here as an outpost of God's grace defending His gift to humanity that is so trashed and crashed. We need to understand and celebrate the transforming power of the Gospel in this realm where there's so much trouble and so much trial. And so as we would give counsel to others, whoever we are, as we would apply this in our own individual lives, as we would defend marriage according to God's design in a hostile world, we all need to be equipped I don't think it's ever been the case that those who are not married could just write this off and say, such instruction does not apply to me. But even more so today, we as Christ's people need to know what marriage is, how it functions, and how His grace is worked out in our lives as the people of God. So let's all come to this text. It applies to us differently, but this is, this is knowledge that we must have and must apply in this fallen world. Peter starts with counsel for wives, saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. He's going to address wives along two lines. First, how they relate to their husbands. Then, how they pursue beauty. Starting here, obviously, with this imperative to be subject to their own husbands. Likewise, wives, he says. That is continuing this string of practical application. Peter turns to this subgroup, exhorting them to be subject to their own husbands. The idea of the Greek text is that wives are to choose to rank themselves under the leadership of their husbands. The way that the Greek reads pointedly is that this is a decision wives make in their own heart. It's something they choose to do. To rank themselves under the God-given leadership of their husbands. This is a calling from God. It's a voluntary, selfless act of integrity on the part of wise that synchronizes with God's creative design. We notice here, just by side note, uh, it's your own husband, not to all men equally, but to your own husband's. As we know, God created the husband as the head of his wife, 1 Corinthians 11.3. And it is God's good counsel then for wives to submit to their husbands God-given leadership in the home. This is true even when the husband is an unbeliever. This is a challenge to believing wives as they respond to believing husbands. But if there's any notion that there's certain situations in which this doesn't apply, Peter says, even to those who are living with unbelieving husbands, this is the response. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Slaves aren't living, all of them, with believing masters. And none of the citizens of the Roman Empire were living with a believing emperor. And so it is, if there's unbelieving husband, it fits that you should continue to be subject to him, to his leadership, It's a God-given norm in this world, so honor it. In such cases, submission has an evangelistic effect, we notice here, that even if some do not obey the Word, which indicates that probably most of their husbands were believing of, of women that would be in the assemblies, even if, it's a possibility, even if one does not obey the Word. I'm taking that as I believe consistently through the book of 1 Peter that Obeying the Word is submitting to the Gospel. It is trusting Christ as Savior. We might say it that way. Now it certainly applies to a Christian husband who is not honoring God in some area of his life. But specifically here, Peter has in view those who have disobeyed the Gospel. They have not turned to Christ as Savior. You are to subject yourself to the leadership of this man. Why? So that, he says there in verse 1, that if they do not obey the Word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. The aim or purpose is that they would be one, and here I think contextually, to Christ by the conduct of their wives. 
When a wife honors her husband's God-ordained leadership, even when he's an unbeliever, she chooses the best way to win him to Christ. This is the best evangelistic strategy for her. What is that way? That way is emphasizes conduct over words. As verse 2 clarifies, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So it's conduct, not words. Respectful conduct. The word here is fear, and some would take that consistently in 1 Peter to always refer to the fear of God. So we might say something like, your reverence before God. And purity, godly, holy, irreproachable, clean life. A wife should submit to her husband not to feed his pride, not to avoid conflict with him, not to look virtuous in the eyes of others, not to manipulate him or because he deserves it. She should submit to her husband as an act of reverence toward God, aligning her life with God's plan to bless a marriage. That is the reason Scripture gives. Now we note the best way then to change a broken husband is not to preach at him. It's not to criticize him. It's not to mock his way of life. It is not to badger him into submission. It is not to confront him and certainly not to play the victim. The best way is to live a godly life before him. Demonstrate to him. And remember who he's talking to here. A nation of priests. A holy chosen people. Display to your unbelieving husband the grace of God in your life. Show to this man what God is doing to change you. It's not play acting, but it's living out righteously the life that God has given to us in Christ. Without a word, it says. Now we have to fill in the right blanks there. It doesn't mean you never talk to your husband. Of course, it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that you never share the gospel with him. You notice here that these husbands are disobedient to the word, not ignorant of the word. They've heard the gospel. It's been proclaimed to them and undoubtedly by their wives who responding to the gospel of Christ, who coming to know of his death and resurrection, were transformed by this message, began to be the chosen people that God had called them to be and undoubtedly communicated that to their husbands. But their husbands are disobedient. They don't want that word. And obviously, if their husbands ask them to explain the gospel to them, wives would be disobeying Christ not to do so. What we have here in view is a disobedient husband who has rejected the gospel and he's entrenched in that position. In that case, he is to be won by your conduct without words. That is, without preaching, without criticizing him. We're going to get nowhere by withholding things from him, punishing him for his disobedience to God. I may even speak of some, to some wives here whose husbands are leading a life that is out of sync with God's will. Preaching at him will get you nowhere. You will get nowhere playing the victim or wallowing in self-pity. You'll get nowhere pleading with Him to change as such. God's counsel to you is this. Live a godly life before Him. Live a godly life in speech, in conduct, in attitude, in fidelity, and love. Walk in love with Christ before His eyes. Win Him by your conduct, not by your preaching. Some will say, well, I've tried that and it doesn't work. Really? God's counsel doesn't work? We need to really be cautious with that argument. When God says it and I don't do it because it doesn't work, I have a spiritual problem in how I relate to the Lord. Maybe you're more interested in your husband pleasing you than you are in pleasing God yourself. And you're not done yet. Keep at it. Others might say, I can't do it. I just can't do this. Right. You need God's grace. 
you're going to have to depend in absolute trust upon the Lord. That if all excuses are dismissed and you throw your trust upon God's enabling strength, you are on the road to transformation. Keep at it. It's a difficult calling. It will take absolute dependence upon Christ. But don't go to win Him with words. Don't go to preach at Him and correct Him and badger Him. Win Him with your conduct. Win Him with the beauty of a life that is aligned with Christ's will and that is being transformed by it. No, it won't work pragmatically. It's not an equation. But it's counsel from our Creator. Let's trust it. So wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is God's design. This is His good gift to humanity. And even in the worst case scenario where He is an unbeliever, this will have an effect as you live righteously before Him. Now some counsel on pursuing beauty for women. Verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. This is what not to do. There was a temptation in that day, as in our own, for women to invest money to draw attention to their bodies, to send a message, to display themselves physically. Some have argued on the authority of this verse, and there's whole groups of Christians who have argued on the authority of this verse, that we should never wear jewelry. We should never wear makeup. On that reasoning, you should also never wear clothing. Right? That's obviously not the point. Chuck knows. <laughs> now that's, that's, that's where we can get off track in how we read the text. He says here, let it not be the clothing that you wear. What's the point? Obviously, women can wear clothing that virtually eliminates a man's ability to think about her character. The only thing that he can see is her external beauty. Thoughts about her character are far away. They don't matter. Adorning the body in that way should be avoided. Taking this counsel seriously, we must conclude that the way a woman adorns herself makes a statement. And, a, and one statement that it can make is a fleshly statement. Now hear me. Today, evangelicals largely dismiss all clothing concerns as Pharisaism and legalism. Well, there's plenty of that to go around, to be sure. But we should not ride the pendulum so far the other way as to think that clothing is somehow exempted from whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We should dismiss those who impose overly specific, arbitrary, merely preferential guidelines on all Christians with respect to dress. But we should also dismiss the argument of those who say that we cannot discuss principles of modesty, appropriateness, and holiness within our cultural context. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 does just that. Speaking of modesty speaking of appropriateness, speaking of holiness. These are matters that, doesn't, that somehow dress isn't outside the realm of this discussion. Clothing, Peter seems to say, as does the Apostle Paul, says something. And the Lord counsels women here not to dress in a manner that gains undue notice. Women should not dress in a way that is calibrated to turn heads. Rather, and positively, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is what to do. The hidden person contrasts with the external adornment in verse 3. Those who are dressing, those who are dealing with their bodies simply to gain attention, to make a statement to draw the eyes, maybe particularly of men, or to impress other women who are around them. The kind of beauty women should emphasize is not located in clothes. It's not evidenced in their hairstyle. It's not found in their jewelry. The kind of beauty that God counsels us to pursue here 
is the kind of beauty that is comprised of a gentle spirit and a quiet spirit. This is God's counsel. It's His Word. A gentle spirit. What is that? It speaks of a spirit that is, we under, as we understand the Greek term, amiable, friendly, tender-hearted toward others. It's the opposite of coarse and rough and ill-tempered, brusque, retaliatory, aggressive, or bitter. She's not nasty. But she's gentle in spirit. She's quiet in spirit. This doesn't mean a quiet voice necessarily, and certainly not mumbling. It refers to a tranquil, calm, peaceful spirit. It's the opposite of the restless soul that resists authority or is agitated and unsettled. In fact, as the text unfolds, that is fearful. It's a steady, quiet, dignified spirit. This kind of spirit is the kind of character that is precious in God's eyes, it says here in verse 4. In the sight of God, this is very precious. Now, don't get the idea here, oh, isn't that precious? God looking at it that way. That's not the idea of precious here. Here, precious read valuable, of exquisite worth. God looks at a woman who has this steady, confident, dignified, quiet, gentle spirit and says there is a woman of exquisite value. There is a truly beautiful woman. I mean, we would laugh to think that God is impressed by what you wear. I think He can certainly be discouraged by what you wear. Be discouraged by a way a woman does not care for her body. But He's not impressed with the money that we invest externally in ourselves. What God finds valuable and what a godly man should find valuable above all else is this gentle and quiet spirit. No woman is sufficient for such things. It demands absolute trust in God. And it demands, I think, too, that as a congregation, we as an assembly elevate what God finds beautiful in a woman. It's not provocative dress. It's not expensive dress. What he finds beautiful is the inner being of a woman who walks in faith before the Lord. We've got a job to do to teach our young women because this is not what the world is teaching them to think. The world in which we live is saying that the ultimate key is that you're a hot woman. That you're beautiful and attractive and people are drawn to you physically. That you're maybe a bit obnoxious at times, rebellious, a bad girl with an attitude that can kick the guy she wants and kick away the guy she doesn't. Put any authority figure in his or her place. That's the kind of attitude, the kind of spirit that is seen as attractive in our culture. We need to teach our women and our young girls particularly that that's nauseating to God. Such a view of femininity is cheap in his eyes. All about the external. All about the attitude all about many times acting more like a man than a woman. That's our culture. That's not our counselor. That's not what he says. That's not where he finds value and virtue. God highly values a woman with a quiet and gentle spirit, a dignity that goes deep within and evidences itself in godly living. And there's a historical inspiration now that he draws on at verse 5 to identify these women with that strain of thought that goes back a long ways. When he says there in verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You are her children. Significant statement. There's an identification here that is affected in these Gentiles by their trust in the Gospel. They identify with Sarah of old. Sarah submitted to her husband calling him Lord, it says here. It's referring, I think, almost 
certainly to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12 where Sarah, in fact, calls her husband Lord. Now, what is amazing about that text is that it's just an off comment. She doesn't make any emphasis upon it. In fact, it's that spot where she's laughing at the idea that her aged husband and her are going to have a child. But in the laughter of that unbelievable thought, in dismissing it in her lack of faith, she refers to Abraham as her Lord. Just this off comment. Schreiner catches this well when he says, the text of Genesis displays that her honor of her husband was part of the warp and woof of her life. It just came out of her. She honored him even in the midst of this situation. Now somebody's got to call a time out here and say, really, Lord? You're going to call your husband Lord? What is going on with that? Let's talk about it for a bit. Our culture does not afford such a term, and Lord is not it. A wife who called her husband Lord in our culture would be far more likely to get him in jail than she would to create any respect for him. So let's remember, in that culture, in that setting, this word Lord evidenced that Sarah had respect for her husband. I, I, I've never asked my wife, I never want Beth to come or call me Lord. Not at home, not anywhere. That doesn't convey respect. That conveys that something's really wrong with me in our setting. We don't have this term. But as, as the author Davids writes, he thinks that really the term would have been used in that day with no more blush than we might use the word my husband. But it was a term that conveyed respect. And there is no question that wives can speak of their husbands in a way that does not convey any respect at all. Sarah wasn't that kind of woman. She always conveyed, even not thinking about it, she always conveyed respect for her husband. And you are her daughter's amazing thing he's writing many of the women very likely gentiles in these churches you're sarah's daughter if you so relate to your husband if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening we find there at the end of verse six wives in that day were expected to worship the gods of their husbands now, what you have then, especially with those husbands, well, with those husbands who are disobedient to the Word, what you have there is a wife who has come to embrace the faith of Christ. She's trusted in His death and resurrection. She's identified with His people, and it's a religion different than her husband's. That would have been a great embarrassment to her husband in that day. You just, you just evidence that you were a decent man if your wife honored your religious orientation, whatever that was, and it was fairly consistent in that day of paganism. But here's this woman now going off to meeting with Christians. And in a day when husbands had virtual, almost absolute rights over the body of their wives, this would have undoubtedly resulted many times in suffering, which is why Peter's writing with such care to these women. They were facing, some of them undoubtedly, intimidation on the part of their husbands, maybe their extended family saying, listen, quit shaming your husband like this. Quit going to those people. Quit going to that worship. Set this Christ thing aside and come back into the fold of paganism. Many of them perhaps even faced physical abuse because of it. What, it's amazing what Peter says here. Do not cower. Don't be frightened by anything frightening. It's kind of an interesting phrase. Don't cower. That's not how a woman with faith in Christ responds. You see the dignity here. You see the strength here. And again, our world would counsel us and tell us, oh, this is all really ridiculous things. It's just a way for women to be abused that's all that's the whole idea of being subject. Think about what Peter's saying here. There'll be intimidating men out there, husbands, don't be frightened. 
There's a call to strength there that is deep within. You are, in fact, children of Sarah as you honor your husbands in this way. Not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but because of your reverence for God. And don't be intimidated by anyone. Be willing to suffer for Christ. Some people suffer for Christ because they're leading a church. Some of you, he says to these wives, may suffer for Christ because of your pagan husband and the intimidation that he's bringing into your home. Don't cower. Do good. Fight evil with good. Continue to stand for Christ. I think the key idea here is that these are women who hoped in God. The central controlling focus of a godly wife is on pleasing the Lord and pursuing His eternal reward. She had her hope in God. Her controlling focus is never how her husband fills all her needs. It's hope in God. Wives and wives-to-be. Can I say this with all the respect and love that I can find in my soul? No husband can fulfill all your needs. None. There are books by Christian authors who feed such idolatrous thinking. Avoid them. Your husband has and will fail you more than you'll ever know. And probably has not failed you in some ways as much as you feel he has. Be a woman who pursues godly character, sets her face to the eternal city, and leaves her husband in God's hands. That's the counsel that we receive. I'm not saying you never talk to him if he is ignorant of of failing to meet a need in your life. But don't put your hope in him. Do not put your hope in a man. Love him. Respect him. Be submissive to him. Live a godly life before him. But put your hope in God. Women who put their hope in their husbands and maybe particularly in their husbands meeting their every need, are women who are discouraged, disappointed, increasingly bitter. Put your hope in God. These were women, says Peter, who hoped in the Lord. It's amazing what can happen in a relationship when you get your focus off your navel and start looking up to the Lord true for all of us in all situations. I don't mean that just to women with troubled marriages. But to every one of us to get our eyes off of self and what's not going right in my life and to get my focus and set my hope on the Lord. His coming reward. His coming reign. And to live with that orientation. It's just deep counsel. And the counsel continues now for husbands at verse 7. And we might say, now, you're looking at the text here, this doesn't seem fair. we got six verses to women and one verse for husbands. What's going on here? I think if you, I, I'm, I admit I'm not in Peter's brain. I don't know exactly what's going on. But it makes perfect sense, I think, if, as we work through this text. Suffering is a theme that controls Peter's work here. He addresses mostly people who are subject to suffering at the hands of others. So he addresses citizens. What does he say to emperors? Nothing. He addresses slaves. What does he say to masters? Nothing. He addresses wives. What does he say to husbands? He can't keep from saying something. It doesn't doesn't really even fit in what he's saying for him to address husbands. But he's got to throw in one little comment. This comment is a jewel. It's beauty. I think in some sense it's out of sync with what he's saying, but he's got to balance this somewhat, and he gives it one shot, one verse in our text, 
and it's beautiful. Great counsel. The imperative here is live with your wife in an understanding way. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge, the Greek text reads. Here I think live with, though it often has sexual overtones, is here used more comprehensively. It's all of life with them, sexually and every other way. Live with them according to knowledge. That is, you are called husbands to understand how she works, what motivates her, where she struggles, what she desires, how she thinks, what encourages her, what turns her on, what turns her off. You need to know that about her. Figure her out. The only way to live with her with insight is to love and by way of qualification, that is, verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So I'm going to study her. I'm going to know her. I'm going to discern how she functions, what makes her tick, as we say. But I'm going to show honor to her as the weaker vessel as well. Honor. That means I'm not to run my wife down. I'm not to belittle her or take her for granted. We're to treat our wives as precious and valuable people. There are men who treat a gun, a car, an electronic device as more precious than their wives. That's wickedness. If I can be that frank, it's evil. She is a gift from God. Yes, she's broken, just like you are. But she's a gift from the Lord. She's an exquisite gift. We're to relate to our wives with insight, with tact and sensitivity. We should speak about her with affirming, appreciative words in public and in private. And husbands seem to have a struggle with one or the other. Maybe perhaps uh, mostly. Some, it's both places. Some will speak affirming words publicly, but not privately and vice versa. Speak of her with appreciation wherever you are. Ask, your, ask this question, men, husbands. Are you more polite to strangers than you are to her? Why would that be? I know there's answers, but why would that be? Does she know she is far more valuable to you than anything that you possess or than anything that you want to do? Does she get that? She is to be honored as the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Generally speaking, I think it means that she is more physically vulnerable, not as strong. Maybe on some level, in some way, in some relationships, there might be an emotional application there. But I think generally speaking, she is a vessel that's not as rugged. Now, let's remember, we inhabit a culture in which men are systematically feminized and women are prodded to act like men, so exceptions to the rule are trending upward. But it's quite evident to anyone who doesn't want to rage against the universe that generally speaking, men are stronger than women. It's not a negative statement, it's a statement of reality. And for husbands, as they recognize that, they should treat their wives not with disdain, but with respect. Thank God she is a weaker vessel. She's more delicate in some ways. And there is there something to appreciate. A vase that looks like a toolbox is not a very valuable vase. Does that mean she's inferior? Anybody thinking that way? Peter answers, since, why do I treat her with honor? Why do I dwell with her according to knowledge? Because our wives, our heirs... Excuse me. Our wives are heirs with us of the grace of life. And so that your prayers may not be hindered. Two reasons are given in defense of this kind of 
relationship with a wife. She's a fellow believer. There is no way in a Christian worldview to any more thoroughly destroy the notion that she is inferior than to say this here. She is an heir with you of the grace of life. The grace that is eternal life. She is granted equally with her husband a full standing as an eternal heir of God. A recipient of the grace that produces eternal life in Christ. Lenski says this, to be fellow heirs to the eternal kingdom is the highest position to which poor mortals may rise. And it is this spiritual height which prompts mutual honoring. She's a queen of the eternal home. A weaker vessel, perhaps, physically. No way inferior. This idea destroys the common argument from this passage that a wife's submission to her husband in verse 1 is merely a cultural concession. Or it's due to Peter's bias that women are weaker and inferior. Peter puts that to rest. And anybody thinking that in verse 1 is not reading verse 7. She is an heir with you of the eternal reward. To treat her as inferior is to rage against God. And so that your prayers may not be hindered. The second defense. It's anticipating, I think, perhaps verse 12, where we read, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. She is of exquisite worth. She is of high value. She is God's gift to you. Treat her poorly and you're raging against God. Husbands, God's face will be turned against us if we do not live with our wives in full awareness of her needs knowing who she is, knowing her desires, and laboring for her spiritual prosperity. I don't want to be in that spot. And it should cause us to tremble with fear, to think of crushing the spirit of the woman that God has given us as husbands. Your prayers will be hindered. He will turn his face away from you. If you do not treat her as a woman of worth, which she is. I know it's a bit of a negative way to start a sermon. It's a bit discouraging right from the beginning. No human relationship more clearly and widely displays our depravity as a human race than marriage. But can you argue it? I know there can be worse examples in certain relationships, but on this pervasive level, I think it's difficult to say anything else. Marriage is in a mess in our culture and across the face of the planet. Our opportunity to display the transforming grace and power of Christ, though, is realized in this challenging relationship. It's here that we have a unique opportunity as Christian husbands and wives to say, here is the glory of Christ. Look at how we relate to each other as husband and wives and know that this is the grace of God. You can't answer it any other way. This is God's grace. And husbands and wives, may we take to heart again that we display in our relationship the love of Christ for His church and the submission of the church to Christ. What a high calling. What a tremendous challenge for us. And I say to those of you who are unmarried, who would like to be married someday, or maybe someday that your mind will change and you will like to be married someday, hear this. Drink it in. Know the counsel of God. And know that in God's Word there is an infinite source of wisdom that can never be matched by all the gurus and philosophers and psychologists of our day. 
Hold this vision close. And may we together labor to support marriages. Those who are unmarried and would desire to be married, don't allow yourself to walk in a path of pity that does not allow you to encourage those who are married within this assembly. Support them. Encourage them. Know that they are an opportunity in this world to display the glory of God. Get behind them. Pray for them. Join with them in their endeavor. And those who are pursuing marriage, where there is counsel from other married people, heed that counsel. It doesn't mean that everybody's right. Especially if they're trying to play matchmaker. They may not be. It doesn't mean they're all right. But listen, heed. Don't go after marriage in isolation. That's folly. We need to know as a church that this is God's gift. That it is a problematic relationship because of sin and that we can support and strengthen one another. And just a brief word to couples perhaps that are here that are in trouble. Your marriage is not a happy one. There's struggles and there's trials. There is also hope. It's not an easy road, but there is hope. And I ask you just the simple question, do you believe in the transforming power of God? He can change married couples. He can. You say, I don't see it, it's not working, I can, not in my case, in any case. The arm of the Lord is not weak. We are, but He's not. In His transforming grace, there is an answer. It's not in a seminar. It's not in a book. It's in your relationship with the Lord. Know that. And find encouragement along those lines from those who know God's truth. And I may speak to others here today who have no relationship with Christ. You've been kind of invited in on a conversation here, a family conversation about the realities of sin in this world. But know this and understand this, that the transforming power of God that works itself out in the lives of a husband and wife, that what that power is at its heart and at its core is that, the church, that Christ loves His church. Like a perfect husband for an imperfect bride. He gives Himself to die in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. He rises from the dead to give us life and hope in Himself. And He loves His church. And He holds, and extends, holds out to us a hand and extends to us the invitation. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Embrace Christ as Savior and you become part of His bride, the church. And Jesus has given His life for His bride. And He labors through intercessory work and outpouring of grace and love to beautify and deepen and mature His bride. Become part of that people. Trust Him today. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we need Your grace. We all need to come before the Word in humility, submitting to it. Providentially, by Your sovereign appointment, this text of Scripture has been declared in this congregation today. You have a reason for that. And I pray that every one of us would take to heart what we need to know, would consider the state of our own soul, and would respond. Those who know not Christ, we pray that you'd open their eyes, that they'd be born again. This is our cry for them. For those of us 
who respond as believers to this message, may you deepen us through this truth. And I pray that you would show your arm strong to change and to transform weak husbands and wives into trophies of your glory, into a nation of priests who mediate the excellencies of their Savior to a sinful world. We ask that you'll do this among us for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord was spoken today. And as we looked at the relationship of the husband and the wife, or any relationship for that matter, we can use those relationships as an opportunity to display the glories of Christ. So let's all stand together in the light of what was was spoken. Let's sing, I Then Shall Live. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my Savior. I am His child, His so greatly pardon, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love, I gladly will obey. I then shall live as one who burns.